Hello and good evening and welcome to another episode of Religions, Regimes and Refugees and their Multicultural Mess and Secular Scam. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I really appreciate your presence. I know you were a lot of you listening yesterday to the podcast for education uh, heritage of ancient India. Uh, it's a very important topic. To, for us to know what happened in ancient India and how it uh, progressed, died down, how we lost our sense of education, knowledge, and how it has been revived. Um, and in, in order for you to partake in the revival of the Vedic um, knowledge systems of this country, of India, uh, very, very important. In order for us to revive the Vedic civilization, we need knowledge and we need to connect with the past. We need to understand the roots the journey it has taken in order to empower ourselves, to heal, and to each one to contribute to joining the dots and reviving the Vedic education system on our own, not waiting for the government, not waiting for uh, the laws, the ministers, on our own, person to person, helping, connecting the dots, human to human, teaching each other, uh, sharing the knowledge, imparting the knowledge, and this is important. We all have to contribute to revival of the of the Vedic uh, age, the Vedic heritage that uh, was left to us um, and imparted to a new generation. And today, today we continue reading from a book. Um, I have added it to my Facebook page, Religions, Regimes and Refugees. There's a link there. It's called The Educational Heritage of Ancient India, um, How an Ecosystem of Knowledge Was Laid to Waste. Um, if I if if um, if you have time, please go on to Amazon.in or any other website you want uh, um, and buy the book. It's very good and it's it's a good start. Obviously, it's not it's just one book. It's a small book, but uh, it's not very expensive and it's it's a good start. From there, you can build and build and build. And there are a lot of many other books. Uh, which can help you learn about knowledge in ancient India and don't just keep it to one book, just spread the news, share the book, share the knowledge. So we've talked about knowledge in different systems, female education, universities. Now we'll talk about uh, how the educated people in India went outside of India to help those other universities, other centers of knowledge to spread knowledge and to transfer our knowledge to, to people around the world, just as we do today. So the cycles have changed, the labels have changed, but the mentality is not. Today we still go all over the world spreading knowledge instead of spreading violence and war. You don't see Indians involved in war, you'll see Indian in, involved in IT, in technology, in space, uh, well, a little bit, uh, but in, in imparting knowledge to the planet. And that is what the Vedic civilization was and the Vedic civilization will always be. And so it is our turn to today. Uh, so buy the book. It's not written by me. It's written by someone else. So I'm, I'm not promoting any book of my, my own. But uh, it, it is for us to support our fellow Indians and, and their uh, hard work that they put in. Because every book can take sometimes decades to put knowledge together and go from there. So... Uh, we're going to talk about the revolution, fueling of knowledge revolution outside India. So in um, we in, in the first century CE, Chinese emperor Ming Ti sent 18 people to study Buddhist doctrines in India. When they returned, they took back many books and also two Buddhist scholars with them. 
Um, one was in Gandhara from Gandhara and he was invited by the Chinese envoy. His journey from Gandhara to China was fraught with hardship as he passed through steep mountains of, of the Chinese Turkestan and the harsh Gobi Desert. Uh, there was language problems, however, the two pioneering scholars preserved and op opened up opportunities for hundreds of professors from Indian universities to work in China. A large number of Sanskrit manuscripts were carried to China. Among the well-known Indians who migrated to the first in the first three centuries were Sangam Varma, Dharma Satya, Dharma Kala, uh, Mahabala, Vigna. Dharm, Dharmapala, Kalavsivi, Kalaruchi, and Lokarasha. Kashmir was a big center in Buddhist learning and supplied a steady stream of uh, scholars to China. One such scholar was Gunavaram Varman from Kashmir royal family. First, when uh, one such scholar was Gunavarman from the Kashmir royal family. And he first went to Ceylon in Java, where he made a name for himself. And the Chinese emperor invited him to China. Um, and he was received in Nanking and, be, and, he, and became his disciple. And they built a temple for him. Uh, a few scholars from southern India also got pulled to China, such as Dharma Ruchi. Uh, who lived in China for 20 years, translated 53 works into Chinese. Hundreds of Sanskrit scholars were painstakingly translating the Chinese, um, all Indian works, and mammoth task of considering the totally different syntax and structure of two different languages. And many scholars were recorded, uh, even recorded their struggles and discomfort. Um, one of the very famous books uh, that was printed in China was the Vajra Chekdika, uh, Prajna Pramita Sutra, or the Diamond Sutra, as it's known, which was translated into Chinese by Kumarajiva in 402 CE. Kumarajiva was prodigiously talented. He studied in Kashmir, in Kashgar, in Kutcha, and it said that there was a battle for his services. Um, between the king of Kucha and the Chinese emperor, whose general imprisoned him for 12 years. Um, he translated 100 Sanskrit works, which were considered masterpieces of Chinese literature. Um, he's also known as the teacher of the famous Chinese traveler, Fa Hien. And there's a, chap there's a statue of him in Zhangjing, China. I don't know if I pronounced that right. Jin uh, Jiang in China. Sorry about that. Um, some scholars who went there, their lives were cut short because of the hardships over there. Um, and some um, people were made to return to Indian shows uh, because because of various troubles that occurred during that time. Um, it's not just in modern timelines that employees get back, get called back from vacations by hard-hearted uh, bosses. Um, there was one such scholar called um, Amog uh, Havaraja. He collected more than 500 texts from different parts of India to take back to China and translated at least 77 works. 
including dharanis and tantras. In China, he is known as the founder of tantric Buddhism. Collecting texts from India and carrying to China for translation was regarded as a holy duty by many scholars. Yi Jing, for instance, speaks to have collected 400 different texts from 500 shoklas, but this is lesser than 657 texts carried by Zhuang uh, Zhang, his predecessor, as estimated uh, by uh, later writers. Uh, several Indian mathematicians and astronomers from best universities held positions in China's scientific establishments. One Indian scientist called Gautama Siddha became the president of China's official board of astronomy in the 8th century. He translated the Indian Navagraha calendar into Chinese. He also introduced Indian numerals into China. The invention of printing is also attributed um, uh, to Buddhist scholars who went from China, India to China, and printing was used as means to spread a Buddhist thought. The, well, I didn't know the, invented, the invention of printing is attributed to Buddhist scholars who went from India to China. I never knew that one. Uh, so transfer of knowledge from India to other parts of the world, namely Greece, the Islamic world, and Europe. The antiquity of civilization and ecosystem set up propagation of knowledge turned uh, India into a, a veritable garden with exquisite flowers that extracted attracted honeybees. Royal in in an essay on the antiquity of Hindu medicine, it was called um, a royal physician in as mentioned by royal physician in the court of King Persian King Koshru. Uh, who returned from India with medical texts as well as a variety of herbs who were proficient in Sanskrit. Uh, there was a thriving trade between India and West Asia in ancient times, which is involved not just spices and textiles, but medicines. Uh, in his talks on the antiquity of Indian medical systems, Raj Vendam, co-founder of Indian History Awareness and Research, has laid out a trajectory by which knowledge of Ayurveda was transmitted from India to Greeks, Romans, and the Islamic world, and then Europe. He points out the scientific concepts articulated in Indian Rishi uh, by an Indian Rishi, um, which was taken up by Greek philosopher Democritus. According to the Bertrand uh, Russell, uh, Democritus traveled widely and had visited Egypt and Persia in the search of knowledge. Hippocrates, as it's called, considered the father of Western medicine, was a student of Democritus. These are Greek words, okay? So it's H-I-P-P-O-C-R-A-T-E-S, was considered... Um, the father of Western, who was a, a father of Western medicine, was a, a student of Democrat, Democritus, who uh, again traveled um, to various places um, and took a lot from Indian knowledge. We know that. Um, so. The Library of Alexandra, there was a library in Alexandra, um, um, Egypt, which was, which was um, installed or created by 
the Greek invasion of northern India and um, Alexander saw the, the, the university in, in Takshila and then used it. He never built it himself, but I think his, uh, his general later on built it in his name. Um, and there was a huge library which was later on burned down. Uh, but a lot of knowledge was taken from Takshila and inspired by Takshila and was in, instrumental in, in uh, texts from east to west. It has been well chronicled that the library administrators went to an, any extent to get the most original and authoritative copies. The material medica combined by Greek physicians uh, from 50 to 70 CE, which was used for 16 centuries in Europe, contains a large number of Indian herbs. Another data point offered in, is the fleeing of Nestorians to Persia and to escape Persian persecution of the Christian church. So um, a lot of Nestorians, Nestorians uh, uh, are a sect, a group of Christianity, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Falling, I think that it was a father by the name of uh, Nestor, but it's a, a sect of Christianity. But they they were um, they they escaped to Persia uh, to flee Christian uh, at the church, and from there they fled to Kerala in the fifth century. That served to transmit Indian medical knowledge back to Syria. So the Christians from the Christian empires uh, fled from from the Levant to Persia. Uh, Persia absorbed them because they were not Christian. Uh, Islam was not on the scene back then. And from there they fled to Kerala because Kerala was a big base of knowledge. Uh, the 5th century Abbasid Caliph Harun al-Rashid had an Indian physician Manka in his court who translated ancient Indian indispensable medical text, the Sh Shushruta Samhita into Persian. The imprint of Indian scholars on Islamic sciences not just medicine has well been acknowledged by Islamic scholars such as Al-Burini themselves. Indian scholars were often invited to Baghdad. Baghdad, as we know, is the city that was built on Setesfion. Setesfion was the original city and it was later called Baghdad. Uh, Baghdad was sort of a satellite city uh, area built with tents uh, by the Arabs invasion was about 40 kilometers away from the main city, obviously because the Arabs did not know how to live in urban areas. So they couldn't just go and live in an urban area. They lived on the outskirts and slowly that city became big and big and big. And it was later known as Baghdad, but it was attached to Setesfion, which was a center of knowledge uh, and, and a trade route. Um, um, so the imprint, yes, yeah, so the works of Muslim Intellectuals such as Al Kindi, Al Fabri, Al Fargini, Al Tabri, Al Kavirizmi played a paramount role in transferring Indian knowledge of mathematics, medicine, astronomy, philosophy, chemistry, even music to the Islamic world, without which the Islamic world would not have survived. They would still be roaming on their donkeys. While Islamic scholars often credited their knowledge to Indian sources, the European scholars often plagiarize from Arabic texts without reference. Uh, the Renaissance, well, I, I, I sort of disagree because they refer to the Arabic text 
uh, and the Arabs refer to the Indic text. Uh, but today, no one refers to the Indic text. Both the Islamists and the Europeans both say that, oh, well, it's no, it's uh, they invented their own knowledge. God gave them, uh, Christ gave them, Muhammad gave them, Allah gave them. But all of it was God from the Kufars, which is the Indian subcontinent. And uh, they still intend on calling us Kufar. Uh, but hey, kudos to their intelligence. The Renaissance was propelled by the works of Arabic scholars, which were passed off as original works of Europeans. In the 12th and 13th centuries, the Toledo School of Translators in Spain employed many scholars to translate major Arabic works into uh, Latin because the, Europe, because the Arabs, uh, when they translated Indian works and European works in the 6th, in the 7th century, in the 8th century into Arabic, they burnt the European works. It's very important to understand that the Arabs burnt the Arabic, the European works that they translated. So when the Europeans wanted it back, obviously they had to go back to the Arabic text because their own texts were burnt. It's important to that to say that it was not the Arabs who gave Europe knowledge. It was the European, it was the Arabs who, who burnt the text so that the source of the knowledge would be wiped out and they could take credit for the source. Um, these translators produce prophylic output to help transfer a substantial amount of ancient Indian knowledge to Europe. The transfers continued with great intensity during the colonial period from 14th century onwards, when contents of hundreds and hundreds of Indian books made their way into monographs and books in Europe. Um, and um, there's, there is also a Bibliotheca Malabarica, a catalog of over 100 Tamil manuscripts collected by Indian missionaries during the first two years of um, rule in India. Uh, so the down, we're going to talk about the downfall and the descent of uh, learning in, on the Indian soil. And that, my dear friends, is attributed to uh, the Islamic invasion of India and the absolute butchering and, and barbarianism of the Indian subcontinent. Uh, imagine a group of hostmen riding into a campus of world-famous universities, mowing down students and professors until their bodies lie scattered everywhere. Um, and this scene was repeated university after university. They targeted these universities because they wanted to take education, Indian education, out of India. Remember, a river that forgets its source will dry up. And that's what they wanted. They want to supplement um, knowledge of our Vedas and, and our texts and our treaties from the ancient world and supplemented with Islamic education. Now you know why we have for a thousand years we've been on a decline. Uh, we've lost our knowledge, we've lost our way and they still, the Islamic establishment of India still pays the Indian government, the, 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 the Congress, the, TL, the TMC and all the AAP, they pay them bulk, big, big money their lobbies to keep the knowledge of our ancient land out of our source, out of our history books. And this includes the evangelist Christian uh, department. And the only thing they, they want to tell you that India, Hindus are caste, Hindus are, are Dalit. Hindus are caste, Hindus are Dalit. They don't want to do anything. They will never tell you the truth about 
what our Vedic civilization was, and they keep forcing you with, oh, your caste and knowledge, caste and knowledge, caste and knowledge, cows, you worship cows, penises, caste and knowledge, and they quietly, quietly keep the knowledge of our of our uh, of our civilization away, so that they can control our minds and they can control um, our civilization, take it over and wipe out the Vedic civilization, which was twenty times far better than any Abrahamic civilization anywhere in the world. Without which and without the Vedic civilization, these Abrahamic civilizations would not exist. So. Um, all this time when there were no computers, no digital storage services, no clouds to save knowledge accumulated over generations, it was all wiped out by the Islamic invasion of India. Violence was unleashed the, on the foremost universities of the time, Nalanda, Vikram Shila, Odan Tapuri, by Muhammad Bakhtiar Kilji uh, and his men, which sent shockwaves to the land and the sacredness of, uh, associated with the institutions and persons of learning was violated in manner never seen before on the Indian subcontinent. The attack was chronicled by Minhaj e Siraj, a principal historian of the Delhi Sultans in the Tabakat Nasiri, who described the slaughter of thousands of Brahmins with shaven heads. There were a great number of books there, he says. He writes, when all these books came under the observation of the Muslims, they summoned a number of Hindus that might give the information respecting the import of the books. But the whole of the Hindus had been killed. It is ironic that Bhaktiar Kilji hailed from a tribe in what is known as Afghanistan today, which practiced Buddhism for centuries before being overrun by the Ghaznavids and converting to Islam. In, sub in subsequent years, as Muslim rule spread and consolidated in different parts of India, many more universities were destroyed, such as Jagadala, Sompura, Vallabi, Kashmir, and others. As the news spread, scholars abandoned their colleges even before Muslim invaders appeared. In Banaras, one of the ancient India's ancient centers of education, when several hundred of temples were destroyed by Kutubuddin Aibak, in the 12th century, many learned Brahmins who, were, who taught were fled to southern India along with their families. Some of the scholars who escaped from Vikram Shila and other universities, such as Sakya Sri Badra and Vibhuti Chandra, made their ways to Tibet, another hub of ancient learning. Records maintained by Buddhist monks at Tibet give accounts of destruction of Indian universities. A translation of Sanskrit texts preserved in Tibet helped to give an idea of the books they found in libraries of great Indian universities. Um, so the, you also have, you, we know the um, Kutub Minar and the Kutub Minar complex uh, where we have the Kuvat U Islam Masjid in Delhi. Okay, it was built on the from the pieces of twenty-seven Hindu and Jain temples destroyed during the reign of Kutubuddin Aibak in the thirteenth century. Now we know something that to all these temples were attached centers of learning. Every single temple had well, not every single, the bulk of them had centers of learning. Had uh, you not only universities, but they had uh, schools, guru uh, gurukuls, 
and these temples were the center of the village and every village system had a system of education and when they destroyed the education these islamic invaders they destroyed the knowledge and the um, the schooling system in india once this was destroyed then the indian civilization came crashing down and we have not gone back as yet so um the onus is on the Indian rulers. Had they learned lessons from earlier destructions of libraries in Alexandria, Cordoba, Persia, Ghazni, uh, many which contained texts from originated, which originated in India itself, if they put their differences aside, perhaps India would boast of the world's longest-running universities today. Most importantly, India would have related its link with the ancient works in Sanskrit, especially the ones on science and medicine. The destruction of key centers of, uh, centers of higher education in India, including temples and persecution of Hindus, Buddhists, and other followers of Dharmic faiths during centuries of Muslim invasion and occupation and domination uh, affected the progress of S Sanskrit scholarship. The writing of new Smritis and their revisions considered a setback. Historians A.L. Srivastava had described the 325 years of Turco-Afghan invasion as a period of great suffering for the Hindus, which clearly was not conducive to education, especially female education. Because we have spoken about it, female education was also very important in ancient India, as the moment Islamic invasion started in 711 with Sindh, um, the Islam they believed they believed that women should be separated from men, women should not be educated, women should be kept uh, under their burqas um, away from the society. Their education came to a halt, and this this was destroyed the indian civilization because you cannot empower a civilization if you can you cannot teach their women even in the matriarchal societies the main teachers were women the mothers the mothers the matriarchs of the tribe were were um involved in in disseminating knowledge to the people the children of the tribe and the men went on uh, on caravan trips to to trade and to hunt so not only were they deprived of their positions as rulers ministers and governors and commanders of troops but they were also treated contemptuously turkish sultans and principal followers sought their brides from well-to-do hindu families and compelled the proud chiefs to part with their daughters in accordance with Muslim law, the Hindu girls were first deprived of their uh, civilization and their faith, converted to Islam by force, and then married. The accounts of Brahmins fleeing to different parts of India to escape Muslim persecution are too many to be missed. Um, despite many attempts to regroup in distance, uh, distant locations, even to rebuild some destroyed universities, the old glory of Indian educational institution could not be restored. The absence of science education that was not that was noted by the British uh, chroniclers in a later era can be linked to the Muslim invasions of India. Uh, so when the British came, uh, the East India Company, they noted in their chronicles that there was no science education in India, while Islam. 
Islamic establishment today says, oh, well, you know, uh, we had science in our madrasas. It's a big zero. It's a lie. It's a complete and absolute lie. The British colonial chronicler said very clearly there was no science, scientific education in any uh, systems of education in India, um, in any type of schooling and madrasas, nothing. Uh, they could have been for the elite, only for the elite, and what was translated from Vedic and Sanskrit texts. But this was not given to the population. It was given mainly to the elite. And so the bulk of the population stayed and educated. Sanskrit works of scientists and mathematicians of earlier period began to be forgotten in the land of the origin, even as the Arabic and Latin translations were plagiarized and spread all over the world. So. The whole world came to India, took our knowledge, the Arabs, the Persians, the Greeks, the Europeans, but we were not allowed to have it. And even till today, we're not allowed to have it. They call us fascists. Why do you think the West is calling us fascists? Why do you think the Islamic establishment and the Muslim Brotherhood is calling us fascists? Because if we revive our Vedic civilization, we will see that everything that was taken, that exists in the, in the, in the, in the Western world and the Arabic world and the Islamic world comes from the Vedic civilization and they've lied. They've lied and said that Abraham is the real religion of God. Abraham is the real uh, faith of God. Without Abraham, there's nothing. Uh, it's the true word of God and everything else is kufr. Everyone else is untouchable and they have dumped all their uh, atrocities on the Indian subcontinent and attached it to the Hindus and lied that their God Abraham and the, the father of prophets gave them this knowledge or uh, empowered them with faith of this one God and empowered them with knowledge and that's why they've become so great but in reality when the truth comes out that their fascist f fingers pointing at others is actually the three fingers pointing back at them and their theft of uh, our intellect, our intelligence, of, or not intelligence, but the theft of our, of our civilization is really what fueled their, their, their civilization and their empires. And um, if the Vedic civilization is revived in this land, um, then they have, their lives will be brought to the surface. And they cannot stop it without, they cannot stop it. Un, and the only way of stopping it is, is calling us fascists, age speech, uh, hypocrisy, bigots. This is what they do. This is the only thing they've learned in 3,000 years of butchering this planet. This ignorance is what they've learned. And uh, they keep hyping it on us with the Virgin Mary and uh, the Holy Spirit and some from somewhere or the other they get this Holy Spirit but behind the Holy Spirit is is a uh, absolute arrogance um, that they cannot compete at all with the um, Vedic civilization I don't know what there is to compete in the first place because knowledge is knowledge we are on the same planet with the same currents and the same waves it, it's just that the label is different but they cannot seem to understand from the inside that They've stolen a, a civilization, and one day the cycle will turn. And it's for you to be prepared and um, understand the theft of our knowledge 
and the arrogance of these colonial uh, invaders, Abrahamic colonial invaders, uh, that has led us to this. And of course, um, it is your duty to empower yourself with the knowledge of our ancestors and understand that this caste and Dalit is give it is is it does not belong to the Indian subcontinent. We are land of universities, uh, way, way, way before all the other uh, civilizations. And it's important to have that confidence and be able to tackle the debate when people um, offload their ignorance and their arrogance on you. So going back um, to the Islamic invasion of the Indian subcontinent and the um, Islamic invasion that was was that uh, replaced the Indian education um, as various Muslim dynasties got uh, embedded into in the Indian psychic and the, the land education with the aim of impart their education was the aim of only importing Islamic teaching from the Quran from the Hadith and from the uh, Tafsir uh, as M.A. Khan in Islamic Jihad says a legacy of forced conversion, imperialism and slavery. Muslim rulers in India built on Islamic schools, namely muktabs and madrasas and often linked to mosques because in the ancient world, these ancient temples were actually centers of knowledge. They were not places to pray as we pray today. We go to the church to pray. We go to a mosque to pray. We go to a temple to pray. But these ancient centers of gathering were all around electromagnetic fields. And these electromagnetic fields uh, were there to empower the magnetic energy of our body. And around them, they had centers of learning because it was important to understand the cosmos inside you. And once you understand the cosmos, the astronomy, the rest is all fill in the blanks. So teaching around these electromagnetic centers what, uh, temp on which temples were built uh, was a way of art, was a way of doing things in the ancient world. And when these temples then got broken down and invaded and replaced by synagogues and churches and, 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 and mosques, they continued that same concept. And for them, it was called the Islamic world was called madrasas in in um, in the Christian world. There were churches or uh, church schools. Um, today we call it Sunday schools, and but they only teach you ridiculous uh, Christian knowledge, which is absolutely ignorant. It doesn't take you anywhere; it just makes you redundant. And sitting and uh, for the Jewish world, we have uh, yeshivas which uh, existed around uh, the synagogues. So it's the same thing. The labels have changed, but the mentality has not. Um, <clears throat> sorry. So Muslim rulers in India built only Islamic schools, namely muktabs and madrasas, often linked to a mosque solely for training Muslim students in their religion and other crafts for administrative and military duty. Useful for the Muslim state. Learning Arabic and Persian language and memorizing the Quran, prophetic tradition and Islamic laws were major subjects of studies. If you if you read the hadith, there are people who do uh, the M B A M A um, PhD in hadith, and I really uh, I I don't know what is there to to do a PhD in a hadith. Um, it is there's nothing there to do a PhD. I don't know what is there to do what you want to do in 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 your hadith as as PhD, but. There's no scientific knowledge, there's no any knowledge, and it's very 
insulting to the Prophet Muhammad. Um, I'm sorry, I read it. Uh, maybe not all, but uh, not everything is bad. But there's a lot of negative stuff, and and it's just I I don't see any person. I don't see myself wasting time on that. But this is what we've studied, and this is how we've gone down to the depths of the ocean. Um, limited training was also given in agriculture, accountancy, astrology, astronomy, history. Uh, geography mathematics needed for running a state so all those who were involved in running a state were given this but it already existed it was nothing great it was just translated from the previous civilization and given to a, a new generation but all of this existed in the ancient world way before these people came on the planet uh, uh, existed and so it's it's it they, they just plagiarized it and removed the source Muslim education was patronized by rulers from Mamluk, Tughlaq, Lodi dynasty, as well as the Mughals and the Bahamni states. Delhi became one of the most important centers of Islamic learning. And towns such as Jalandhar, Agra, Ferozabad, provincial capitals also began to teach literature, philosophy, various humanities. Islamic schools that used Persian as a medium of instructions were out of bounds for Hindu students. A lack of state support for education for Hindus led to drastic decline in higher education, even though primary schools in the villages continued to function, where unjust taxation was not, not only crippled the finances and therefore forcing many Hindus to convert to Islam and the learned Persian and learned Persian as a way of gaining respectable pro, uh, positions to avoid paying the jizya tax imposed on non-Muslims. This was also a time when caste stratification became more rigid among Hindus in order to retain identities and preserve their traditions. Keeping Sanskrit and regional languages alive, rich businessmen, uh, Hindu rajas, locals, communities kept the flame of learning uh, alight by, for Hindus. Uh, during the reign of Mughal Emperor Akbar, Sanskrit received a little amount of patronage since the ruler was interested in harmonizing relationships between Hindus and Muslims. The first Sanskrit-Persian dictionary was compiled during Akbar's reign. Many works were pronounced in Sanskrit, Hindi, Hindi, Urdu, and regional languages such as Bengali and Marathi. It was the age of Tulsidas and Rahamin. Akbar was, uh, was keen for students to not only restrict themselves to theology and classical literature. In the Aini Akbari, which chronicles the reign of Akbar, it says everybody ought to read books on morals, arithmetic, notation, peculiar to arithmetic, agriculture, mensuration, geometry, astronomy, physio physiognomy, uh, household matters, rules of government, medicine, logic, tabi tabi uh, natural sciences, higher mathematics, metaphysics, theology, and history, all of which may be gradually acquired. In studying Sanskrit, students ought to learn um, Patanjali, Naya, Vedanta, and no one should be allowed to neglect these things which uh, the present time requires. Akbar also encouraged the opening up of madrasas for Hindu children so that Hindus and Muslims could study side by side. He introduced the study of Sanskrit in many madrasas. His imperial library in Agra housed as many as 24,000 manuscripts. The books had attractive buildings and were beautifully illustrated. The king loved to listen to readings on books as a variety of subjects. 
the Jain monks produced a number of sanskrit works during Akbar's reign. Uh, encouragement of literature in Sanskrit and regional languages continued to some extent in under Jahangir and Sajahan. And uh, Sanskrit poets uh, were patronized by Sajahan. A new language emerged from the amalgamation of uh, Persian, Arabic, and Hindustani, uh, and which is similar to today's Urdu and Hindi. Um, it was not perfect. There was a lot of oppression also. People were forced to convert to Islam by uh, imposing high taxes on them. And some uh, Akbar, uh, towards the end, removed the jizya, but not all were patronized with the removal of jizya. The locals on the ground, the, the muftis and the mullahs on the ground still would have continued it, although Akbar did not um, did away with it. And people say, oh, well, Akbar did away with it. Nothing goes away tomorrow. It's like you put a law in the land today, is people going to change tomorrow? No. So there was no internet back then, so he put a law, doesn't mean people on the ground formed it. But there were many, many um, taxes put on people, on land, and so people were converting. So one side, he on the front, he would show that he's this uh, amalgamation of Hindu-Muslim, uh, but the Muslims themselves were Hindus. There were no Hindu-Muslims, it was just a change of label. Uh, and the Muslims... Um, the conversion, the proselytization continued by imposition of economic taxes um, and economic jizya, jihad on, on, the, on, the, on the locals and thereby we got not just, we, we got two different cultures on the land, um, Hindu and Muslim, which did not exist. This divide and rule did not exist, so it existed way before the British came. Um, and uh, of course, it was considered can can con continue to some extent in Jahangir's time and Sajahan's time, but uh, Aranzib completely re um, reversed the whole trend. He persecuted Hindus. He built new makkabs, madrasas on demolished temples. Um, he, on hearing that Brahmins um, in Sin and Multan and Multan and especially Varanasi, were attracting Muslims to their discourses. He ordered the temples and schools to be demolished. Uh, he killed his elder brother Darashiko, the rightful heir to the throne. He was a son who was a Sanskrit scholar himself. With the help of pundits, Dara had translated the Ramayana, the Gita, the Upanishads, the Yoga, Shitvas to Persian, all of which constituted blasphemous uh, acts in the eyes of, the, of his brother. Uh, Dara's Persian translation of the Upanishads was translated to Latin and in the beginning of the 19th century and created the newest interest in among learned Europeans. Had Dara become an emperor instead of Aurantab, India's destiny would vastly be different. Um, a lot of uh, foreign uh, chroniclers have pointed out that what some might call the Muslim Islamic period in Indian history uh, was in reality continuous war of occupiers against the resistors. It, it exists again today. It has not gone anywhere. He explains that in order to stop the continuous hostilities, the Muslim rulers resorted to a compromise which, um, which the Hanafi school of Islamic law made possible. Uh, alone among four Islamic schools, they, the school of Hanifa gave Muslim rulers the right not to offer the kafir the sole choice between death and conversion, but to tolerate them as dhimmis 
Yeah, so they said, well, you you know, the Hanafi school said, okay, well, you don't have to consider them, kill them or convert them. You can con you can give them the title of dhimmis, protected ones, living under 20 humiliating conditions and to collect jizya and uh, jizya from them, sort of a toleration tax. Typically, the dhimmi status was only open to Jews and Christians, uh, as in the Quran, because there is no Hindus in the Quran. Um, a concession was made, was condemned by jurists uh, of the other schools, which explains why the communities have survived in Muslim countries, while most other religions uh, have not. Um, on dhimmi conditions, some of the Hindus could be found willing to collaborate so that more or less uh, stable polity could be set up. Even then, the collaboration of Rajputs with the Mughal rulers or the uh, Kayastas with the Nawab dynasty become a smooth arrangement when enlightened rulers such as Akbar cancel the humiliating conditions and the jizya tax. Um, Dr. Eltz, a European scholar, has highlighted that it's become um, Hanifid law that many Muslim kings consider themselves exempted from duty to continue their genocide on Hindus, which were persistently reprimanded by the Mullahs. Uh, more, moreover, the Turkish and Afghan invaders also fought each other uh, so that they often had to ally themselves with unbelievers against their fellow Muslims. Slowly, Islamic occupation gradually lost its character uh, of the camp total campaign to destroy the pagans, and many Muslim rulers preferred to enjoy the revenue from stable, prosperous kingdoms and were content to extract the jizya tax and to limit their conversion effort to material incentives and support of the missionary campaigns of Sufis and mullahs. Um, also, Hindus were needed as, as administrators, diplomats, and military commanders for Muslim Turks and Afghans. Even the fanatic Aurangzeb was forced to appoint Hindus to high positions, such as Tipu Sultan was. Uh, this is also the reason behind the occasional generous acts towards the Hindu institutions, such as temples. Um, we'll just go quickly to the sciences during um, the Mughal rule. There was never the the Mughals did not build any leading scientific concept um, during uh, of during the era, um, and they presented by the or presented by the previous era. Uh, no uh, big person became a worldwide leader in science or mathematics mathematics during the the, the Mughal rule. While madrasas propped up everywhere, teaching Quran and Hadith, um, the Western world was making advances in science and technology. Well, thank you to knowledge coming from the Indian subcontinent, from the Greeks, from the pre-Christian era, from Alexandria, from China. Um, all of them were using this knowledge, but we on the Indian subcontinent was, were kept away from this knowledge. Um, of course, these advances considered uh, considerably assisted by the Toledo School translations of Arabic that were derived from India. Um, the 
Mughal kings missed the opportunity to ride the waves of technological discoveries in the West, despite ruling over the richest land in the world. When the Portuguese missionaries presented printed papers to Akbar, he was least interested in the potential of printing, press, and transformation, transforming education. His son Jahangir was similarly indifferent to a mechanical clock presented to him by the royal French delegation. The Mughal Empire was, has not produced a single worthwhile text or, or, on crafts or agriculture, how many volumes of poetry or history it might have to its credit, writes Irfan Hibab. Apart from printing press and clocks, Mughal rulers were aware of nautical instruments, telescopes, pumps, and various mechanical gadgets and wheelbarrows, yet they, these did not excite any desire for indigenous adaptation. The marvels of Mughal architecture were achieved without the aid of, well, of wheelbarrows. How did they do it then? Because they were not Mughal architecture, it was Indian architecture that was taken and rebranded as Mughal architecture. Um, and you see, the worst imprint of rule of 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 education the worst imprint the worst time that we have gone through is during this turco-mongol era the turco-mongol occupation of the indian subcontinent and of age of uh, asia minor which is today called turkey was the worst time in the last two thousand five thousand years worst time because these people absolutely destroyed and kept us behind so many people say oh i love going to turkey turkey is so beautiful turkey is so nice turkey was turkey is the um offshoot or the remains the relics of the ottoman empire and the ottoman empire absolutely destroyed education all over they were the the garbage bin of the planet and people say oh well there was great education there was islamic education there were madrasas teaching you islamic quranic studies tafsir uh, hadith what is there in that nothing they did not while the west was going forward with knowledge they, they refused to even have the printing press Finally, they got the printing press, but they used it for non-Islamic uh, material, but not Islamic because they were scared of uh, blasphemy uh, to the Quran. Similarly, on the Indian subcontinent, the Turco-Mongols, the Delhi Sultanate, the, um, the Afghan rulers and, and the Mughal rulers, no scientific marvel or, or treaties to their name Everything that existed was already there in Sanskrit. It was just translated. Nothing to their name, no advances. Even when they were presented with uh, architectural marvels, uh, or should I say scientific advances, they did not adapt it. So you, you think that we're not going to go down the drain? Um, women education is going down. Scientific knowledge is going down. Nothing is going up, but it's going down with a thousand years of decline. And the and our beautiful Congress only decides to to put the whole nine yards on the British, not they're not telling us exactly what is going on, uh, what really happened because of their vote bank and and thanks to the Congress, we did not rise. We was we have still remained backward on the Indian subcontinent. Um, 
so basically that's what it was um um there is also the british um the rule the um, there is also indian education during the british raj we will talk about this tomorrow in christian evangelism and you know because i'm an ex christian that is very very important to me uh to pronounce uh and how um we have literally completely um gone downhill but all is not lost because we are cyclic um, and it's important to understand that concept of, of cycle and we will rise up so I'm counting on you my dear friends uh, to empower yourself with knowledge what happened in the ancient world how it happened how Indian education or should I say Vedic education or civilization took place how knowledge was the base of education Every temple was a school, had a school attached, and these schools imparted knowledge to the local villages and kept the, the cycle of knowledge and empowerment going. Uh, we had universities, higher um, the temple universities, universities all over the, uh, the Indian subcontinent, which have been destroyed and now replaced with this secular universities, which teach you absolutely ridiculous nothing. Uh, but empower yourself. Uh, Make a note to translate and sorry, should I say to share the knowledge, share the, the data with your friends, with your your uh, your social media groups, in schools, in education, in societies, uh, with your family. Have that conversation uh, at a dinner. Um, don't just talk in general. Uh, you can download books, you can buy books, and you can share your books with people. So. We have to form that chain to resurrect the Vedic civilization through knowledge and from one person to the other person, not waiting for the government to help us because the government is not going to do anything until you do it yourself. You are the, the beacon for the next generation to transfer and to, to empower them with knowledge of our, of our ancestors and to rise up to a better India, to rise up to a to revive our Vedic age. Uh, thank you very much for your time. I uh, really appreciate you coming here today. Um, we can do this together. We can revive our Vedic civilization. And I'm counting on each and every single one of you to spread the knowledge of uh, in the educational heritage of India. And please go on to uh, Amazon or wherever you want to go to Flipkart and buy uh, the book. Uh, it's called Educational Heritage of Ancient India. And whichever book you can get your hands on. So thank you for your time. You have yourself a great day.